Morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Isn't the music around here pretty amazing? Uh, you know, the music is so good every week that we just start taking for granted. I so appreciate our worship team. Isn't it amazing to have our choir back? What a song this morning. He is always good. Nothing but good. And uh, these guys wanted me to sing part of that thing that's with them this morning, but I was a little too busy this week, and you can thank God for that. Anyway, uh, thanks for being here and uh, coming to worship the Lord. We have a lot going on. I, I appreciate Kate and all she was sharing up there in our video. Take some time to look through the bulletin. Uh, tonight is a very significant rally for our youth over in our multi-purpose room next door. Six o'clock tonight, it's a See You at the Pole rally. I don't know if you know about See You at the Pole, but 28 years ago, a student-led, uh, student-inspired, uh, student-involved ministry called See You at the Pole began, where kids across the country are going to be meeting at the flagpoles on their schools to pray to God for the schools, for their teachers, for the community, for the nation. And uh, because this, it's all student-led and student-inspired, uh, they have every right to do it. And tonight, there's going to be a rally from kids from churches all over the community who are coming together to get ready to go out to their schools this week and see you at the poll. So you can pray for those kids. If you have a high school student and you'd like them to be a part of it, um, see, I can't remember. I think it's a middle school and high school. Yeah, all encouraged to attend tonight, 6 o'clock. And if you'd like uh, one of the regalia study books, regalia means all the things pertaining to the king and his kingdom. If you'd like one of these books, there's a few still available. We'd love to have you pick one of those up. Well, we are in a series together, and uh, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at 8, 9, and 10, the people choose the king. And... Uh, in some ways, I wish Pastor Phil was doing this one too, because I've so enjoyed the first two messages he's done. Uh, I've been saying, why don't you just keep going and do them all? I'll just sit down there and learn from you. But it's a joy team teaching together, and I hope you're getting a lot out of this. Because God was working in history and is working in history to bring about the rise of his king and his kingdom, the Lord Jesus. Samuel is all about what God had done to bring that about, and I want to read for you today from parts of these three chapters when Israel comes now and they're going to ask Samuel to give them a king. And here's how that unfolds in 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so Samuel goes on to explain all that this kingdom would be like if they asked for this king at this time but they want the king anyway. So when you pick up the story in verse nine, you see how God begins to prepare the people for the king they want. Chapter nine, verse one. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, and they did not find them. They went into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. And when they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, 
Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worried about us. But the servant replied, look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us the way to take. And so they went into the city and Saul has his first meeting with Samuel. And as they begin to unfold the plan of the kingdom over Saul's life, we see in chapter 10 how Samuel calls all the people together to confirm what God has told him about this young man, Saul. And when you pick up the story in 1 Samuel 10 and verse 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. And when Samuel had Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself amongst the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, long live the king. Lord, there's so much in this story. And how much I can hear your breaking heart in the request of the people. Not in that, that they were asking for a king. You had always planned that. But in asking, they were rejecting you. Something happening far too often, even in our own day. But we learn through these things what a God you are. How powerful. How ultimate. How sovereign you really are. So God, today as we open up this word, show us again who you are the one who is giving rise to his glorious kingdom. And we thank you, Father, for all that you'll show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we all make choices, and we live with the experience and the results of those choices. For example, I chose to take a job in 1975 in Seattle when I was living in New England. Through that job choice, I was brought into relationship with some football players on the Seattle Seahawks football team. And through my contact with them, I heard the gospel for the first time. And I ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. We all make choices, and we live with the experience and result of those choices. A few years later, in 1979, I chose to go to my first men's retreat, where a beautiful woman named Carla was leading worship while her dad was speaking. And she asked me to marry her. Well, it didn't go, <laughs> didn't go exactly like that. But we did, we did end up getting married. Because you see, we all make choices, and we live with the experience and the result of those choices. And by the way, you know that not all of our choices turn out well. There are consequences at times that come. And if we had a chance to go back, we might make different choices. Someone once said, our lives are the product and the sum total of our choices. And of course, that's not exactly true. Because the truth is, our lives are the product and sum total of what God decides to do with our choices, which he knows in advance that we will make. Sometimes God chooses even to use our wrong or misguided and selfish choices to accomplish his eternal purposes, purposes that lead to his glory and to good. And he'll use sometimes even to the building of his kingdom. You see, such is the case in the people's choice when they asked Samuel to give them a king like all the other nations. 
As we read in verse 8, they came to Samuel and said, we want you to give us a king like all the other nations have. And when you pick it up in chapter 8, verse 6, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. You see, when you read through this context here, their request for a king was precipitated by three things. First of all, there was a leadership crisis coming. Samuel had been a good leader, but his sons who were to succeed him were not. Samuel was old, and they could not trust his corrupt sons to lead them when he died. And they saw that coming. And so they came to Samuel and said, hey, we can see what's coming here. We want you to give us a king. The second thing was they had a desire to be like all the other nations. In fact, you'll read a little bit later in chapter 8, verse 20, then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. You see, God was their king, their leader, their defender, and their provider. In fact, during the period of the judges, God had raised up leaders to lead their armies, fight their battles, and deliver the people time and time and time again. But they noticed around them that the other nations had kings who had passed on that kingly authority to their sons. And they would see that there was stability. In fact, many of those kingdoms around them, the people revered those kings like gods. And they wanted kings who would lead their armies and fight their battles and tell them what to do. They wanted a human king like all the other nations. And the third thing was there was a conscious choice to reject God as their king. That's why he said in verse 7, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. But you see, it wasn't a desire for an earthly king that was the problem. It was a desire for an earthly king instead of having God as their king that was the problem. And as we're going to see a little bit later in the book of Samuel, and even today, it was always God's plan to have an earthly monarchy that would give rise to the line of King Jesus. Samuel resisted their request because their motive was wrong. They wanted God to give them the king that they wanted instead of him. They wanted their own kingdom, not God's. And so God gave them Saul, and their choice sets in motion a series of events that in God's wisdom and sovereignty would be used to give rise to the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Because we're reminded in 1 Samuel that God was working even in the people's choice for king to give rise to his eternal kingdom. And how is he going to do this? And why was this so? Because as we're going to learn, no matter who the people choose, God always remains the ultimate king. And no matter who the people choose, God will always remain sovereignly in control. No matter who the people choose, God remains the ultimate king. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. He goes on to tell him in verse 19, Samuel but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he presented it or he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Today, people are making more choices than ever before, and some of those choices were never meant to be theirs to make. In fact, people are noticing this across the country. I was reading a piece by 
David Brooks, one of the columnists for the New York Times, and um, he said, we are experiencing in America what's called a choice explosion. He said, Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, lifestyles, and now even our own identity. In some ways, he said this is a positive trend, but Brooks also cautions that it's becoming incredibly important to learn to decide well. Because in this choice explosion, more people than ever are making more bad choices than ever. They are confused. They do not see the big picture. And they do not know God. The people in Israel's day... The people in the days of Samuel didn't have as many choices as we do today, but they did have one very important choice to make, whether or not they would follow God as their king. And they didn't choose well, but God would show them that despite their rejection, God would still remain the ultimate king. The problem was not asking for a king, but asking for a king to replace God. That's why God said to Samuel in verse 7, the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And he said, it's the same thing they've been doing since I brought them out of Egypt. God had revealed from the earliest days that a monarchy would be a significant factor in his plan to redeem his people and establish his kingdom. People who say that God was angry because he was rejected as king because he never planned another king but himself. It's not true. In fact, do you remember even in the earliest days to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 4, as for me, this is my covenant with you, Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Look at this. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. God also said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And then God begins to narrow it down to a certain tribe through which his king, his ultimate king would come. In the blessing of Jacob of his sons before he died, Listen in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. God put into Jacob's mouth in the blessing of his son Judah, Judah through you will come a line of kings. The scepter will never depart from you, and through your line will come the ultimate king to whom all nations will one day bow. Wow. Which is why when God led Israel out of Egypt to give them a promised land, God told Moses his requirements for Israel's future king when the people would ask. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And you can see in Israel's history through the earthly line of kings, every time kings violated this, it created a mess. 
When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. You see, God always said, when the earthly kings come, and it's part of my plan, they are to be God's agent, God's under-shepherd, to lead, to guide, to protect, and rule the people under God's authority. So that even if Samuel died and his sons were corrupt, Israel didn't have to fear because God would still be their king. And even if all the other nations had kings who did not follow God, Israel was to be reminded they had a king who is their God. And earthly leaders would come and go, but the people who followed God had nothing to fear because no matter what the people chose, God would always be king if they would look to him. But the people didn't want God as their king. So God gave them what they wanted and told Samuel to tell the people what the rejection of him would bring. Do you remember the parable Jesus told in Luke 19 about the nobleman who sent his son off to be appointed as king? But when he came back, the people said, we don't want this man to be our king. Jesus was talking about himself. And there are people today who are still refusing Jesus as king. So God said to Samuel, I'm going to give them the king they're asking for. I'm going to give them a king that looks like a king they want. He's going to be handsome and tall, and he's going to be everything people want in a king. But I want you to tell the people what's going to happen when they do this. 1 Samuel 8, verse 9. Listen to them, warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, until others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the rest of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. You notice what he's telling him? You put a king like this over you in rejection of me and here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna take, 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 he's gonna take. Verse 18, and when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. Like, God, are you hearing this? The Lord answered, listen to him. Give them a king. So the people got the king they chose. And all that came with it. You know what? You and I have a similar choice to make today. Who or what will truly be king over our life. If we're honest, most people, including myself, have a tendency to make self as king. We think oftentimes we're masters of our own destiny, we control our circumstances, we have to make these decisions, everything depends on us, and in many ways we reject God's rule over us. And by the way, 
If you don't think so, just listen to how people talk and how they complain when things aren't going the way they think they ought to be going. They don't really believe that God is ultimate king and might be working in those things, and so we start to complain. Because, you see, we really want to be in control. We want to be like everybody else. We want things to go our way. And so many times, in order to get our way, we bow down to the altars, the various altars of the many false gods the world is offering. So we bow down to the altars of power or money or pleasure or sex or ease and we wonder why we're still empty. Because serving the God of self and worshiping at the altars of the world will only leave you empty. Because the gods of this world can't give you anything. The false gods of this world will never give you anything. All they do is take, 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 take. Which is why there are so many people who gain most of what the world can offer and they are still empty. Because the world gives nothing. It only takes. But what a difference when Jesus is truly king in your life. Do you remember what he told the people in Matthew 11? I love this, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will, what? Give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Not me take, you take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, God is the king who gives God so loved the world that he gave. The false gods of the worlds are the one who take. God was giving the people of Israel a valuable lesson. No matter who you choose, God's going to remain your king. And you're going to learn some lessons through this. You cannot reject me and prosper. God is the great king over all the earth. You remember the sons of Korah? They wrote a worship hymn. It was to be sung by all Israel to constantly remind them that no matter who sat on the earthly throne, God was their king. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord most high is awesome, the great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under, his, under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. You see, God's intent was that every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every man, every woman, every child, every marriage, every family, every business, every church, have leaders who rule, lead, guide, protect, provide, and live under God's ultimate authority as king. Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, understood this, which is why the 33rd Psalm became so powerfully comforting to him as he tried to guide a nation through the strife of a civil war that was threatening to tear us apart. Psalm 33, he would often read and quote, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Look at this, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. 
But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. You know, I hear so many people today saying, I'm so afraid of what's going to happen to our country. I'm so afraid we're going to get invaded. I'm so afraid of who's going to be our president. I'm so afraid of all these things. I don't know who to trust or what to do or what to believe. People, you don't have to worry about our nation. You don't have to worry about our church. You don't even have to worry about your life. You don't have to worry about our nation because Donald Trump is not the real leader of our country. As much as I appreciate what he's trying to do on so many fronts, he's not the leader. And Barack Obama wasn't our leader either. And neither were all the presidents before him and all those who will come after him. God is the ultimate leader of our nation. And he will do in it and through it what he chooses to do. And he will use it to accomplish his purpose. Because someday all the geopolitical nations of the world are going to be gone. And there will be one king. And one kingdom. That's why you never have to worry about the future of your church or the future of your family. Because frankly, uh, I'm not the leader of this church, never has been, never will be, neither will Phil or any of you come after us. God's been the leader of this place, pretty obvious. If it was up to me, this place would have died a long time ago. And you know what? I'm not really the head of my family either. God is the head of my family. Which is why I keep pointing my family to, to the real leader who is Jesus the King. See, that's the way God's designed things to work. He always has. But we have a choice to make. We can either honor him as king or we can reject him as king. But the fact of the matter is, king he remains. So the more we look to him, the more we follow him, the more we honor him and obey him in our nation, in our marriages, our families, our churches, the more we will experience the blessing of his kingly reign. God offered this to Israel, even in the choice of Saul. But they rejected God, and Saul turned away, and they reaped the consequences. And they had to learn the hard way. No matter what the people choose, God remains the ultimate king. And not only that God is the ultimate king, but no matter what the people choose, God remains in sovereign control. Am I ever grateful for this? Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. In chapter 10, verse 1, we read, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? It says in verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined their prophesying. In verse 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Verse 20, when Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself among the supplies. So they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live 
the king. The Lord gave them, by choice, the man they wanted. You see, God knows all our choices before we make them. And he uses those choices to accomplish his purposes. I was reading a piece by Philip Yancey called Chess Master. This is what he wrote. In high school, I took pride in my ability to play chess. I joined the chess club, and during lunch hour could be found sitting at a table with other nerds, poring over books with titles like classic King Pawn Openings. Wow, I can't think of a book more exciting to read than that one. I studied (laughs) techniques won most of my matches and put the game aside for 20 years. Then in Chicago, I met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. When we played a few matches, I learned what it is to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, offense I tried, he countered it with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much. His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably ended up serving his own. And then he went on to say, perhaps God engages our universe, his own creation, in much the same way. He grants us freedom to rebel against his original design, but even as we do so, we end up ironically serving his eternal purposes. Now, lest there be any confusion, let me say this. About a few years ago, there was a doctrinal heresy coming to light again called open theism. It was raising its ugly head in our denominational movement and seminary. And uh, our church, along with myself, became very instrumental in exposing this error. Now, open theism taught that the future is not under God's control. It's open because God doesn't know the future any more than we do because it hasn't happened yet. But that God is the ultimate chess master who can counter our every move once we make it and then will use his superior power to accomplish his purposes even though he didn't know what we were going to do. That's heresy. You see, God is the ultimate chess player, not because he can counter our every move, but because he knows every move before you make it. He's known it from eternity past. And not only that, he has the sovereign power to make you make the move he wants you to make. God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. In fact, the future becomes reality because God knows it and makes it reality. He has all power to make happen what he chooses, no matter what we choose. And he's sovereign that his purposes cannot be thwarted. He is in complete control, using the good things and the bad things to accomplish his eternal purposes. So, God sovereignly makes things happen and uses things that happen to bring about the sovereign purposes he has ordained. God knew from eternity past what the people would choose, and he knew Saul would be the choice. And he also knew how it would come about and what the results would be. When God gave the people Saul to be king, he had sovereignly controlled the details that made that happen. God knew he would use lost donkeys and Saul's search, village girls from Zuf, a prophet named Samuel, and all of those details to establish Saul as king. He told Samuel ahead of time who was going to come, what tribe he was going to be from, and what he was to do when he got there. And by the way, when he gets there, tell him about the donkeys he's looking for. They've been found. And after Saul was anointed, God told Samuel all that would happen before it happened to confirm Saul as king and that God had anointed him as king over Israel. In chapter 10, look at verse 2. After he anoints him as king, He says, I want you, Sam, I'm I'm Saul, you're going to be leaving, verse 3, chapter 10, verse 3. You're going to go from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. 
Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they'll be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you'll prophesy with them, and you'll be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. And as you read on, everything was fulfilled exactly as Samuel told him it would be. Why is that? Because God told Samuel what would happen, and he was controlling all of those things sovereignly to achieve his purpose. And when Saul brought all of Israel together at Mizpah to confirm the kingship in chapter 10, verse 17, how did he do it? He said, I'm going to prove to you people that God is in this. So he takes a set of dice called the lot. He throws it out there. And he said, and through the lot, God sovereignly controlled even the rolling of the dice to bring the right tribe, the right clan, the right family, the right man. God controlled it all. Because he knows all things. And he's sovereignly in control of all he ordains. And if Saul had remembered this and and followed God and the words given by God through Moses and Samuel... Saul's reign as God's under-shepherd could have been filled with joy and blessing. You see, God still would have established a monarchy through Judah, not Benjamin. But it would have come about sovereignly without battle, deceit, or bloodshed. You remember Saul's son, Jonathan, who was to be next after Saul in the line? Jonathan already knew he would never be king. In fact, he loved David and had a great relationship with David and even acknowledged to David, David, you are going to be the king. And me and my family are going to serve you. If Saul had understood his role, if he had listened to God, if he had followed the Lord, God would have transitioned from Saul and the Benjamites to Judah the way he intended it to happen. So that even the people's choice could not have thwarted God's plan. But Saul's pride and fear and lust for power caused him to rebel against God. And God took the kingdom away from him. Saul and three of his sons are going to be killed. And the monarchy is going to pass to David under God's mighty hand a different way. See, Saul was the people's choice. So God gave them a man that the people would see as kingly, tall, handsome, with a noble bearing. And even though Saul was the people's choice, God would sovereignly work to accomplish his purpose if Saul would only listen. But Saul rebelled, so God worked it a different way. And now it would be a man of God's choosing that would be his anointed. Through David, as we're going to learn... David's going to rise in the line of kings that would lead to the rise of great David's greater son, the babe of Bethlehem, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, Jesus the Messiah. And it would be the fulfillment of everything that God told David would happen, that God would build through David a line of kings that would reign forever. As we're going to see, Lord willing, later on in 2 Samuel, David will tell God of his desire to build a house for God, a temple to house the ark of his glory. But God tells David that he will not build a house for God. He's been a man of bloodshed, so David's son Solomon will build that temple for him. But, God says, you tell David, he's not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for him. House can refer to a building, a household, or a dynasty. And God tells David, He will build a dynasty of rulers through David, whose reign will last forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. God speaking to David. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'm going to raise up Solomon. He's going to build the house, but his kingly throne is going to last forever. I will be his father, and he'll be my son. And when he, Solomon, does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. He's going to suffer for his choices, the wrong choices he makes. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, Solomon will build a temple. He'll build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you, David. And through you will come the line I've always intended. The line that will lead to my son, Jesus. And when David responded in prayer to God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, it was God's sovereignty that made him sure that what God had said would come to pass. Seven times in the prayer that David prays, he addresses God as sovereign Lord. And he closes his prayer like this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 28. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. It was God's sovereignty that gave David that hope. It was God's sovereignty that brought that same message to a village girl from Nazareth named Mary. You remember in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, where the angel said, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. Look at this. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never end. God is sovereign. Nothing thwarts his purposes. What God has promised, he will sovereignly bring to fulfill in Jesus. And people, this same God is sovereignly working in our lives and circumstances today. Do you honestly think for an instant there's anything happening in your life that God didn't know about? Do you honestly think there's anything happening in your life that is a mistake? Do you honestly think that in whatever it is you're going through today, God is not behind that, whatever its source? Satan may be attacking you. You may have made choices that you reap the consequences of. God may be bringing you through things you never would have chosen. Whatever the source, do we really think that God is not behind that, sovereignly working, to achieve his purpose in your life for his glory beyond anything you can ask or even imagine. Paul told the Philippians that even if you have a life poured out as a sacrifice for God and the gospel, rejoice in it because it's God who is sovereignly working to accomplish his purpose. Philippians 2 verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And if you believe that, then apparently you respond differently. Philippians 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. What were the people doing with Samuel? They were grumbling and arguing. We don't like your sons. We, we, we want kings like the other nations. You're not going to be around forever. Yada, 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 give us a king. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the skies. You'll hold firmly to the word of life. How are God's people going to shine in the world? When, they, when the world sees you and me going through the same junk they go through, but we're not grumbling. We're not complaining. We're saying, God is in charge of this. I may not like it, 
but I trust him. Believe me, you will shine like a star in the universe and God will get the glory for that. God is working to accomplish his eternal purposes. What is his purpose? You and I are gonna be transformed into the likeness of Christ, the king. I don't have time to read the verses I was gonna read right now in Romans 8. But it goes on in Romans 8 to say that everything, including our sufferings, including God's blessing, including our choices, all of those things are worked by God to bring about his ultimate purpose, that you and I are gonna be transformed into the likeness of Christ for his glory forever. And the prophet Zechariah tells us that the glorious king that we're gonna be like is none other than Jesus himself who someday is going to return to establish his kingdom, fulfill every promise, and reign as our sovereign king. Here's how Zechariah put it in chapter 14, verse 6. On that day, on the day when the Lord comes, there will neither be sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It'll be a unique day. There'll be sunlight, there will not be sunlight nor darkness. It'll be a unique day. A day known only to the Lord. With no distinction between day and night, when evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east of the Dead Sea, half of it west of the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That's always been God's purpose. So no matter what the people choose, God remains the ultimate king. And no matter what the people choose, God remains in sovereign control. The people made their choice and rejected God. I don't ever want to do that in my life. I want to align my purposes with God's purposes. I want to know him and make him known. But even though the people chose poorly, God wasn't done. He would continue to work through all of these things to give rise to his kingdom and to the ultimate king, Jesus. Not about you. I know he's coming. God will make, make it happen. And I can hardly wait. God, thank you for being the God that you are. God, may you continue to be honored through our lives, through our many choices, the ultimate king, the sovereign who is in control, so that we can trust you for everything as you fulfill everything you've promised for the praise of your glory. Teach us, God, to keep our eyes on you, to weigh out our choices in the light of your goodness and your sovereignty. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I love the music behind us as we're closing, but uh, I'm a couple minutes over, so I need to stop. And 